Good morning. Good to see you all this morning. I was reminded at the last hour that I needed to say that I'm okay, I'm doing well. As many people said, are you okay? And I am, so I want you to know that. Thank you uh, for praying for me. Some of you are just now learning that I wasn't here one Sunday, a couple Sundays ago, because I had some heart attack symptoms, but uh, they wouldn't let me go. And uh, the good thing is I found out not only my heart is healthy, but my kidneys and my liver are good too, and just about everything else. So that's all taken care of. I want to remind you that um, in your bulletins a couple weeks ago, there were some cards for making recommendations of deacon and elder positions. They're not in there this Sunday, but there should be some out in the, uh, in the foyer. We are, we are really earnest and prayerful about this and would welcome very much if you would join us in praying. If God puts someone on your heart that you, you feel meets those qualifications, uh, uh, is a godly person, then we encourage you to make a recommendation and submit that because our nominating committee, I, I just know you'd be so proud of, of how this whole thing works. It is just bathed in prayer and we really seek the Lord and uh, follow His Word and it, it's, a, it's a thing I'm personally very proud in what happens and, and so be praying and if God puts someone on your heart, we encourage you to fill out one of those recommendation cards for either deacon or elder, the uh, description and the qualifications, all of that information is there. If you're not familiar with it, there's a, um, actually it's a post office box that you can slip them in. Isn't that right? It's like a mailbox out there. It's kind of locked and you can put it in there and then we'll take those out and then nominating committee and then the elders and the whole process starts to unfold later. So please be praying about that. Well, we're in uh, Acts chapter 18. <clears throat> I want us to look at verses 1 through 18 this morning, becoming the church. Uh, on, I think on the bulletin I just put 1 through 17 because verse 18 was kind of a surprise, but I'm going to let you in on it now. So Let's read it together. After this, hey, real quick. Oh, no, I'm going to read it. Okay. Okay. Um, I am going to, I'm, I want to show you this real quick before we look at this. Just to, to give you a little geography, and I know this is such a small little picture, but uh, Italy's right over here. The little boot. This is the Mediterranean. Egypt's down here. Here's Jerusalem. This is the Black Sea. Russia's up there. Way up there. Okay. So we've followed Paul right along here. Then he went to Philippi, you know, through Neapolis, Philippi, Apollonia, over to Thessalonica, Berea. He was in Athens in chapter 17. Now, here in chapter 18, he's in Corinth. This whole region here is called Achaia. And uh, when it mentions Gallio in uh, Verse 14, 15, that's the province that he is over as the proconsul. And then in verse 18, Paul's going to make his way to Cancria, which is a seaport on the eastern side of 
Corinth, and then he's going to go to Ephesus, and then he's going to go over here to Syria. He's going to go up to Jerusalem and then down or north to Antioch. So that kind of gives you just a feel for where this is all happening. Okay? Now we'll read chapter 18. Verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them. And because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue, went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. And not one is going to attack to harm you. Because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half, teaching them the Word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into the court. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court. Then they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. But Gallio showed no concern whatever. How powerful is the interior life? Our thought life. The role of our thought life. I marvel at Paul. I wonder, how does this man manage his inner life? 
Even if you haven't been with us, you know, for the last three chapters. But I mean, in chapter 16, when Paul makes his way to Philippi, and remember, um, God has put this on his heart. He's called. So he goes to Philippi, and you may even remember what we talked about then, how, you know, I I put it in this perspective. If I was Paul, and I thought God was moving me to Philippi, and then when I got there, I was beaten and thrown in jail, I would have some questions about whether I was in the heart of God's will, if somehow I had missed something. You know? I mean, think about that as you go through your life and how you manage your understanding of God's leading and guidance upon your life. And then he goes to Thessalonica. And then he goes to Berea. And in each of these cases, sometimes he's been whisked away at night by the, by the men and women who have followed Christ. Silas and Timothy who are with them to protect him. Because people want to do away with him. And they say things about him that are totally contrary to his mission, what he's trying to do. I mean, when you think about what motivates this man, he has a desire to see people know Jesus Christ as he knows Jesus Christ. He wants God's best for their lives. In other words, he wants a good thing, you know? He goes there for all good purposes. I mean, you could even think of him maybe as an idealist, somebody who wants to change the world, and he's driven by this. He wants to make an impact, and people don't understand him, or they turn what he's saying upside down, and they throw it back at him. And I'm wondering, how does this man keep keeping on? He is human. He is truly human. And it must hurt. And it must hurt deeply to be so misunderstood and to be actually bodily beaten. I, rem- I think of when he was moving from Philippi to Thessalonica. How did he manage? What was going through his mind? How long do those actual physical beatings stay with him? And then the emotional beatings as well. In fact, sometimes it's the emotional beatings that are the most powerful. I've had people say mean things to me that are just not true. And sometimes it discourages me because I think well of them. I want the best for them. And to put it kind of in plain language, sometimes it ruins my whole day. Can you relate? Has there been a time, maybe there have been too many times, where a remark of ill will, sometimes it comes to a second or third hand as gossip. And it's in there all day. But it's funny, on the outside, things look pretty, pretty normal, pretty comfortable, and people come up and, you know, hey, John, come out and play. 
But John doesn't want to play. Well, what's wrong? Everything looks fine. It's a beautiful day. The birds are singing. The clouds are moving. There's music in life. Come out and play. No, because somebody said something mean about me, and it's taken me entirely out of my game. It's all I think about. It seems like every time I try to do what are my responsibilities or what are obligations or even the things of God to serve, it's there. It's there. It's coloring. It's affecting. It's influencing. Now, if, if that's true of me and it's true of you, what's it like for Paul? Really? You know, it's interesting. Everything that Luke has to tell us about Paul's time in Corinth is in the first 18 verses of the 18th chapter. Shortly after he leaves, he writes a letter. It's called 1 Corinthians. In the second chapter, in the second chapter, the third verse, Paul mentions his coming to them. And he says, and I'm going to give it to you kind of literal, so that you really see what Paul is saying, because he reveals in this verse what's going on inside, what was interior to him. And he says, when I came to you, I came with much weakness, much fear, much trembling. Paul, the apostle, human, but even more so, much, I mean, much weakness. Much fear. Much trembling. That's an interesting one. I mean, this is not something he can just shake off. How does Paul manage? Well, we see here in chapter 18 what keeps him on course. We're not in Corinth. But what is our situation? With our family, friends, work, our sphere of influence, what keeps us on course? What causes us to manage those things that are so internally powerful to our lives that it can ruin our whole day, cut off friendly relations, cause us to retreat within ourselves and ignore people, opportunities, even obligations. I mean, some things we just would rather not even do at all, even if it's good. What keeps us on course in our Corinth, in our situation? I think we can learn from Paul here, and we're going to see it. Principle. Paul is a man of principle. He's also a man of the presence of the Lord. And he's also a man of the priority of God in his life. We see principle in verses 5 through 8. We see the presence of the Lord in verses 
9, 10, and 11. And we see the priority of God in verses 12 through 17. It's because Paul is grounded in the Word. He's guided by the will of God. He's grounded in the Word of God, guided by the will of God, and he is governed by the worship of the Lord. And I just want to emphasize that in the end, God wins. The gospel wins. It prevails. I mean, when you think of the time that has elapsed since Luke recorded this and the events that happened, that he recorded, happened actually before he wrote it down. Some 2,000 years, a lot has changed. But we're here because of the gospel, because of the reality of God, and it prevails. Even though those that we're reading about have since died, there's no longer any Rome. There's no longer any Gallio. The gospel prevails. We're sitting here because of that truth. Because God lives. Jesus died and is risen. But how important is it that we who are Jesus people, how important is it that we ourselves follow God and demonstrate the prevailing power of the gospel by the way it operates in our lives. The reality of it in our lives. The reality of Jesus. It was true of Paul, it's true of us. I mentioned 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3. Before we look specifically at chapter 18, I just want to bring something into perspective even more. He opened that chapter when he wrote to the Corinthians with how he came and what was interior to him. He opens that way, but he closes by talking about something else that goes on inside of him. Are you listening? This is very important. Because Paul doesn't always talk about what's going on inside of him. Much fear, much weakness, much trembling. But then he concludes the chapter with something else going on inside of him, and that is the Holy Spirit. In fact, in the last half of the chapter, verses 11 through 16, he talks about the difference the Holy Spirit makes to our inner life and judgments. In fact, in verse 11, he says, listen carefully, he says, who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? In other words, who knows what's going on inside of you? Only you. Only you. I can't know it. You know, on a, on a human plane or level, only you know what's going on, what you're thinking right now. But he says, in the same way that you cannot know somebody else's thoughts, only the spirit of that person that's in him knows his own thoughts and heart. In the same way, we don't know the thoughts of God except His Holy Spirit does. 
His spirit knows the thoughts of God. And that's the whammy. That's the, that's the big deal that he's making. He, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. We are not just privy to our own thoughts. We who are Jesus people, we who know Jesus Christ and belong to him, we not only know just our own thoughts, we know the thoughts of God. That's the point. We're not just natural beings. There's a supernatural thing that has taken place. And no longer can we just look out at other people or look out at the world as though we've never known God or that we don't have His Holy Spirit or that we don't know His truth or that we don't know God's thoughts. And that changes everything, says Paul. In fact, he goes on to say, the person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things. But such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For we have the mind of Christ, which is referring to the Holy Spirit. I mean, I don't think there's any writing in the New Testament that makes a more profound impact in terms of the role of the Holy Spirit than Acts. And we saw that in the opening chapters, where Jesus, in the very beginnings of the church, tells his disciples, after he has died on the cross and been raised, he appears to them over a 40-day period. He says, wait for the promise of the Spirit. And it becomes the very power of the church. And what Paul is saying, and it makes it clear in the messages that they preached that we saw, that the Holy Spirit is the outpouring of the Spirit of Jesus upon his people. That's what makes us Jesus' people to put it really plainly and simply. And what Paul is saying is, we have the mind of Christ with the Holy Spirit. We're not just human. We're not just natural. We're not just earthling. We're forever different because of the Spirit. And that makes a difference in the interior life. There's nothing tricky about this. Jesus' people are not just me-thinkers. In other words, Jesus' people are God-thinkers. The very gospel of God, the spirit of Jesus is part of our makeup. And I believe this helps us to relate at a personal level to how Paul manages this stage of his mission and how God leads him in Corinth. And that's what we see here in chapter 18. We see, as I put up on the screen, that Paul is grounded in God's word, guided by God's will, and governed by God's worship. And I want us to just see that very quickly. When he gets to Corinth, and this is we're seeing, you know, we're told in verses 1 through 5, he comes to, to Corinth. And what he's doing is immediately he starts to ply his trade. He has to make a living. You'll remember he went through Macedonia and he left behind Silas and Timothy to care for the young churches that had been planted, the new Jesus people. But Paul went on. In fact, he went to Achaia in part for his safety. And there he went then to Athens, and now he's come to Corinth. And we're told in the fifth verse 
that now Silas and Timothy have come, and you'll notice it says, now Paul can devote himself completely to teaching and preaching God's Word. So what we get a picture of is that Paul is working his trade because he has to make ends meet. So as it were, Sunday through Friday, he works with his hands, and on the Sabbath, Saturday, he goes into the synagogue and he spends the day with Jews and God, uh, uh, God-seeking Greeks, and he tells them the message that we've heard him say so many times before, that the Messiah, the Son of God, is Jesus. So when Silas and Timothy comes, why is he able to devote himself completely? Because they have brought gifts. They brought gifts from Philippi. They brought gifts from Thessalonica. In fact, this is reflected in his letters, his letter to the Philippians, his letter to the Thessalonians. And uh, so Paul now is able with these gifts that are furthering the gospel, Paul is now able to preach the gospel to tell others about Christ full time. And we're told that as he does this, the Jews, uh, they take great offense at Paul. And we have a, a summarization of their reaction there. And they say to Paul, they, first we're told they oppose him, but they also abuse him, I think the NIV puts it. The word is blaspheme. They blaspheme him. And I'm thinking, obviously this gets to Paul, but why, doesn't, why, why isn't this just like the last straw? The word holds him. Do you see that? He says something that we don't normally talk about, but it's clear that he's grounded in God's word. And the nature that he's grounded in it is that the word becomes a principle for him. Do you know what a principle is? A principle is a truth or something that is so firm and powerful to your thinking that you're just not going to be moved by it. In fact, I think it's a, maybe of a, a value to, uh, to quote Thomas Jefferson. He said, in matters of style, swim with the current. In matters of principle, Stand like a rock. Well, you can elevate anything to a principle. But Paul elevates God's word. And it's all guided by the gospel. And when they revile and abuse him, they even blaspheme him. Which is to turn inside out what he's really doing. And throw it out as, as a curse. He shakes out his clothes. This is not like knocking the dust off your feet when you leave a city. He's not leaving. But he really takes this seriously, and so in their cultural way, he communicates to them. And then he utilizes the words of Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 4. Now, in Ezekiel chapter 33... I think it's the first 15, first 11 verses, there is 
God calling his prophet Ezekiel to be a watchman to his people. A watchman is somebody who sounds an alarm when there's impending danger. Sometimes when you, when you even go to Israel today, you see watchtowers, which is where a guard will sit. They still use watchtowers over gardens to protect. And the watchman, when he sees impending harm or danger to the people of God, he alerts them of the danger. And if he tells them of the danger and they ignore him, then their blood is upon their own head. But if he does not alert them to the impending danger, then their blood is upon his head. Paul takes what he's doing so seriously because of what God has done in the gospel that he sees himself as a watchman. And I'm not suggesting that, hey, here's a principle. When you're talking to your friends, say, hey, your blood is on your own head. They're not even going to know what you're talking about. But Paul's talking to people who understand what he's talking about. They're well-versed in Ezekiel and that 33rd chapter. It's very significant. It shows God's great care and concern for his people in the case of impending danger. The watchman is a beautiful concept. And when Paul shakes out his clothes, he's telling them, this is bigger than me. You can abuse and revile and put me down. You can misrepresent me, but this is bigger than me. We're all caught up in this because this is a big thing that God is doing. This is not a trivial thing. We're not just playing at religion here. And man, he puts it in the boldest terms. And when someone does this, I mean, God comes alive. He really does. My pastor, more than any other great leader and person, and there have been so many wonderful influences on my life, but no one like Pastor Yeager, and it wasn't his charisma, because I don't think he had that much, actually. But there was a power of the reality of God in his life. God was real to him. This Bible was not some dusty antique. And, and, and around him, you really felt like you were in the presence of an Old Testament prophet or something. I think that's how they felt when Paul did what he did. It's like, whoa. Sometimes when you're around a person who's serious about this stuff, it gets to you. As opposed to somebody who's just real nonchalant. It doesn't really matter. It just kind of makes you nonchalant too. We need people who are grounded in God's Word. And the proof that they're grounded is there's a principle in that Word. It changes us. We don't change it. We may move away from it. We may try to ignore it. But it's there and it's working on us. And that's the way Paul was. I think there's something really powerful about this. 
That's how we follow God. There's a seriousness about it. Yeah, there's joy. Joy, lots of joy. We ought to be the most joyful people. But that's because we take him seriously. We take his word seriously. We take his forgiveness seriously. We take the spirit seriously. This is real stuff. And when we let it invade us, it's real stuff. It changes the way we think about ourselves and the way we think about others and the way we see the world. It doesn't mean that in in that interior there are real hard things. I mean, when you read Romans 9, there's that section there where he says, man, I just so yearn for my people to know Jesus Christ. I would rather be accursed than them. These these things really grate on him. But he manages it in a way. He doesn't let it overwhelm him because he's grounded in the word. He lets the word be that rudder in the water that steers him and guides him. It is his compass heading. And then we see that he's guided by God's will in verses 9 through 11. And we notice what the Lord says here. It's just really, he says, there's a command. Do not be afraid. Well, what is, would, would the Lord, and when Luke always uses Lord, he's referring to Jesus Christ. This is a reference to Jesus here. Would, would Jesus say, don't be afraid if Paul wasn't afraid? I mean, it wouldn't even have any meaning. Paul Stop being afraid. Don't think about quitting speaking. Keep on speaking. Don't think about moving on. Stay here and speak. And then he gives him two reassurances. And there are clearly two in the Greek language. In verse 9, And I think it would be really plain to us if they would translate the same word that's used with each assurance. And it is because. And the first one is because I am with you. And then he says, no one will lay, and we're to understand hands on you, to hurt you. They might lay hands on you, but they won't hurt you. And then the second assurance in verse 10, because, and then he says something really interesting and powerful, people are mine in this city. People are mine in this city. You remember back in chapter 15 when uh, there were the whole question in Jerusalem with the council of Jerusalem and James, the head of the Jewish Christian church in Jerusalem, James, the brother of Jesus. Boy, there's that, that key point in verse 14 of chapter 15 where he talks about the fact that he realizes God is admitting Gentiles, calling Gentiles to make a people for his own name. That's a big concept in the Old Testament, to be a people for God's name. And now the church realizes since the Jerusalem Council, Acts 15, that it is Jews and Gentiles, Jews and everyone else, in other words, the whole world can be admitted to the true people of God if they'll only accept him. 
I think Paul has faced a lot of rejection here. We are told in verse 8, listen, we're told in verse 8 by Luke, and he's summing up so much, that Crispus, who was a leader of the synagogue, he responded to Paul. He responded to the gospel and his whole household. And then we're told many Corinthians did. So we're given this perspective. But for Paul, it is confirmed by the Lord in this assurance. And don't think that doesn't matter. Sometimes, I'm going to make this real quick, but sometimes people will say, boy, that was a message that really spoke to me. And if they only knew how scared I was coming into Sunday, how, how I just felt like, Lord, I don't even know if I have anything that will mean anything to your people. When the Lord confirms things, sometimes it is confirming what is only interior to people. And this is a great assurance to Paul. So, verse 11, what happens? He stays. Do you notice that? And we're told 18 months... Now in verse 18, which is a verse I added this week, we read verse 18. You remember what it said? It, said, it talks about the fact that as Paul got to the port of King Crea and took off on that ship, what did he do before he embarked? He cut his hair. Well, it's always nice to look ship when you're getting ready to go for the big voyage. <laughs> No, no. This is the fulfillment, a significant fulfillment of a vow. Which means that Paul, somewhere prior to this, took a vow. Now, a vow is voluntary. It's called a Nazarite vow. From Natser, which means dedicated or devoted. So you voluntarily dedicate or devote yourself to the Lord in some formal way. What do you think he did? Well, when the Lord spoke to him in this vision and told him to stay, Paul formalized his obedience to God's will and wishes, and he took a vow. He said, in effect, from this point on, I'm not going to grow, I'm going to grow my hair. I'm going to take a Nazarite vow. I'm going to dedicate myself to the Lord. I'm going to remain right here. I'm going to continue speaking. I don't feel like it. I'm scared, but I'm going to keep on. The Lord has told me. He's with me. He's not going to leave me. He's going to protect me. So no matter what I see happening, I'm going to believe him over these things that are happening right around me up close and personal. And that's all interior. Which means that Paul is guided by the Spirit of God in his life, is guided by the truth of his word and his will in a way that sometimes the world can't even understand. And that's the way we navigate. That's huge. Or as Al Michaels would say, huge. A weak joke. You know, most scholars think that Paul was there a a year and a half. It says 18 months, 
but we're not sure whether it's 18 months to that point. We do know because of Gallio. Gallio was a significant Roman proconsul from a, an elite and very conspicuous and prominent Roman family. His father was Seneca, the great orator. His brother was also a Seneca who was the um, uh, Stoic philosopher. We can plot, in fact, the whole chronology of Paul's life based on this reference to Gallio. Because at the beginning of July, either 50 or 51, we know Gallio became the proconsul. Just kind of depend. Anyway, we won't worry about the details. The point I want to make, though, is that Paul probably grew his hair for at least over a year. I got to thinking how long my hair would be. And when was the last time he cut it? Here's the interesting thing, too. In, in Corinth, it was not manly to grow your hair. So here's Paul with this long hair sticking out like a sore thumb. We're told, by the way, in, starting in verse 12, that the Jews of one mind and heart, one accord as one, rose up against Paul, probably when he became the proconsul. They thought, now's the time. New proconsul, you know, just like a new teacher. See what you can get away with. So they come to Gallio and they bring this charge against Rome, I mean against Paul, to Rome. The Jews want Rome to educate a case against a fellow Jew. Kind of interesting. And Gallio says, in verse 14 and 15, I'm just going to summarize it. He said, Basically, he says, why should I judge this? This doesn't even matter to Rome. This is your private religious stuff. There's nothing that really matters here for the attention of Rome. I mean, he's really kind of, in effect, saying that because he says, there's nothing here due to neglect or crime. So by priority, I have no interest in this case. And he drives the Jews out. Now we've already seen Rome's attitude. But one might look at what he has said here and say, as even some scholars do, wow, God, like a great puppeteer, made the Roman do something good for Christianity because in a way, Gallio does the right thing. As far as we're concerned, Paul's our hero. He's in danger. Gallio delivers him and sends the Jews running. But Luke doesn't want us to think that way because he adds verse 17. Here's the picture. He drives out the Jews from the bema, that's the word, the judgment seat this area. It's open. It's a forum-like area. He drives them away. Leave the court. Go away. And it says, all. Now, I don't know if that's what yours says. It might say the crowd, but in Greek it says all. Well, who's the all now? Who's the all if the Jews have been driven away? Well, the Gentiles, the people of Corinth that aren't Jewish whether they be Greek or from another country or a native. And they grab Sosthenes, who's the head of the, of the synagogue. 
And I think they, they've kind of retained him. He's maybe dragging his feet, but the crowd grabs him. And what do they do? They brutally beat him in the very presence of the proconsul. And it literally says, and I've got to quote my own rendering here just to make sure I get this straight. And it literally says, um, and no one thing of these, the all, concerned or mattered to Gallio. In other words, not one thing they did to the Jews or to Sosthenes, I should say, mattered to Gallio. Now, throughout all of this, and here's Paul probably with his long hair, which is a sign of his devotion and dedication, his ultimate worship of the Lord. And before Rome, Rome shows no interest in the people of God, the Jews, religion. This is a matter of principle and priority to Rome. And therefore, he's going to educate it the way he does. But when it comes right down to his will, he could intervene. He is the proconsul. He can do whatever he wants. But he doesn't even care. And I thought this week, how do we as Christians... Like Paul, Jesus' people, grounded in his word, guided by his will. How do we show our worship of God in our lives? Especially in a situation like this. And all he shows, Gallio shows, is a real contempt. I think, I think that's exactly why Luke adds this, this incident to help us see. In fact, what happened in the very beginning of this stay at Corinth? Who's there? Priscilla and Aquila. Why? Because Claudius drove the Jews out of Rome. Now we come full circle. Here's an up close and personal case right here in Corinth. The August Gallio. And when it came right down to it, he didn't give a hoot what happened to those people or what they did to, the, to Sosthenes. But there's a part of us that thinks, well, because of the gospel, the gospel was saved. Paul was delivered. Paul was protected. The Christian gospel was furthered because of the judgment of Gallio. I'm voting for Gallio. I support Gallio. I'm putting a placard out on my lawn. We want to, you know, vote for Gallio. Gallio's gone. Rome is gone. The gospel prevails, not Gallio, not Rome. I'm a little concerned that some of us, because of our, our, our open, I mean, worship is about priority. And our priority on this presidential campaign is getting to such heights that some of us are being known not as Jesus people, but Mitt Romney people. Not Jesus people, but President Obama people. And there are good Christians, you hear me now, really good Christians. Yes, every Christian, just like your pastor, is very human and frail. And we don't know all. We can't see all. But there are good Christians who support both of these candidates for Christian principles. And some of you on one side and some of you on the other can't believe that. There are people who are voting for President Obama because they think he stands for the gospel. Poor, underprivileged. There are some people who vote 
for Mitt Romney because they think he stands for the gospel or his platform. You do not know what their priority is. You do not. The Democratic platform, the president said the Democratic platform is different than his own candidacy and what he'll do. That became an issue when the Democratic platform decided it was going to eliminate God and then it put it back. The president disagreed with them on that. You do not know. We do not know. Rome is gone. Gallio is gone. Someday Obama is going to be gone. And someday Mitt Romney is going to be gone. But the gospel will prevail. And we must follow the gospel We must be known for the gospel. We must be known as Jesus people. And we'll do that. We'll fumble along as best we can following the Lord if we'll be grounded in his word and live by principle. If we'll be guided by his will and practice the presence of God. And if we will be governed by the worship of God and let him have priority in our lives and not let politics divide us before the world and the gospel lost in the gamble. That was heavy, wasn't it? (laughs) Let's stand. I love you guys. I know this stuff is hard. And I know in our hearts so much of it matters. And it does. It does. It really does. And you need to vote. You need to, you need to use the privileges of your citizenship. But don't be known as anyone other than a, a Jesus person. And let them know that it is the gospel. The gospel. The gospel. Heavenly Father, we praise and thank you We do know that uh, there are huge things at stake and we want to be on the right side. We want to be on your side. We want to be on the right side of what you desire and long for. Uh, Lord, give us your wisdom. And help us as we follow you to be grounded in your word, guided by your will, and governed by your worship. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. God bless you.